0: Good morning, happy new year, this is such a privilege, I, I'm honored by the introduction by Pastor Mike, and maybe he thinks probably a little bit more highly of me than I think of myself, <laughs> but I do want to say that my wife and I, we came to this church about two years ago, and we've been extremely blessed to have cab in our lives, and that's not an understatement, Cab has made a huge difference to our family, so it 's an honor to be here and I love you guys and I love our elders now for the elders pastor uh, for the visitors, sorry, Pastor Mike is the lead pastor, so if my preaching doesn 't really bless you <laughs> i 'm not the preacher he 's the preacher <laughs> <laughs> but For this year, 2017, I get to preach on prayer, to usher in our new year with new resolutions on prayer. So I'm really excited to hear from Jesus on prayer. We're going to open back up to Luke 18 in our series on Luke. Before I start, I want to pray. Dear Heavenly Father... Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to pray to you, O God. That you are a prayer-hearing God. That you give us parables to encourage us to pray for our own good, Lord. You give us parables to make us do the best thing for us. (laughs) I love you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, for teaching, for dying. For rising. Lord, I pray that in this time you would be with us, that you would teach us, that you would grow us. Let 2017 be a year of prayer, oh God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to have two parables up to verse 14. Both of these parables are about constant communion with God, a constant conversation with your, with your creator, a life that is the most beautiful life, a praying life. God wants our companionship continuously. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. Our God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit needs nothing, but in creating, he wanted us. And so to not live a life of prayer is a tragedy. That is a tragic life, not to live constantly in communication, introducing the light of Jesus Christ into your soul in prayer. So this is what Jesus is calling us to, a noble privilege, for us to be in prayer. There was a church father that said prayer supports the soul more than food supports the body. So to be in prayer is to be more in the battles of life than any other act that we can possibly be in. Let's read the parable first. I will give her justice so that she will not keep beating me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So this parable has been Utterly fascinating to me because I thought I knew what it meant until I started to study it. Let me just point at what I think Jesus is getting at. In verse 1, he very clearly tells us the parable was given so that we would pray always and not lose heart. And then in verse 6 and 7, he says he will give justice to them. Will he delay long over them? No, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And then in verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, he will come in justice. Pastor Mike preached two weeks ago in chapter 17 about the coming of Christ, which was the coming with justice. And so he's still in the same topic. He's still in the same context. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a parable that's going to make you pray. And then he tells them a parable about justice. I don't know about you, but if somebody asked me, uh, if they said, Peter, what, what makes you pray? I wouldn't go to a parable on justice. That's a, a new category. So for me, it, it has begin, begun to reshape how I think about prayer. Why does Jesus believe that a parable on justice will cause his people to pray? Why? What is Jesus wanting us to see in this parable? He didn't change context. He's still talking about justice. So let's walk through the parable. The first character in the parable is an unrighteous judge. He says he doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about his fellow man. He's presented as though he's objective and unbiased. He doesn't care about a widow crying out to him. He's compassionless. But to Jesus, to be... Neutral is not a virtue. To have no regard for God and man and not even care about a widow who's so helpless, that's not a virtue. That's wicked. So he's presented as an unrighteous judge. And then the second character is a widow. She has had something crazy apparently happen to her, some kind of traumatic event. And so we see her crying out for justice. We see her... She's a widow, so she has no standing in the community. Normally, you might give the judge a bribe to get justice, but she seems to have no bribe or not willing to give one. She seems to be completely alone. She is crying out for justice against her adversary, and so she finds herself coming to an unrighteous judge. Now, imagine for me, with me for a moment You're in this Middle Eastern setting, and he goes out, and there he is going to the market, and there she is following him around, saying, give me justice. If he has a dog, when he goes out to walk that dog, there she is next to him, give me justice, give me justice. And so he gets to the point where he says, this lady, I don't fear God or man, but this lady is wearing me down. She's giving me a beating. In verse 5, it says, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's like the Greek literally is, she's going to give me a black eye. If I'm in a boxing ring, she's going to win. She's wearing me down. I'm going to have some kind of nervous breakdown with this lady. She just keeps coming at me. I just, I can't take it anymore. I don't care about her. I don't care about God. But I'm just going to give her what she's asking for so I can just have her leave me alone. Then Jesus in verse six and seven, he goes to explain the parable, says, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says, "Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him night and day?" This is the interesting part. If you just read the parable, just the parable alone, how would you interpret it? We have an obligation as readers of the scriptures to accept Jesus' interpretation first of the parable. And he lays it out very clearly. He doesn't focus on the widow first. He focuses on the judge. Verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Verse 7, God will give justice to his elect that cry out night and day. Will he delay long? No. I tell you, he will give justice speedily. And then in verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, which In chapter 17, 29 and following was all about the coming justice. Jesus is very clearly pointing at the justice that is to come in the second coming. And so here we have Jesus presenting a widow who is very unlikely to get justice, but gets it. And he parallels that with the elect that cry out night and day. And God is much more willing to give justice. God is willing much more to give justice. So now that we have the parable in front of us, back to my original question, which had just caused me to ponder and pray and pray and pray. What is the connection? Why does Jesus believe that a parable that is to cause us to pray always, which then becomes a parable about justice? Why does a parable on justice cause us to pray always and not lose heart. I see four reasons in this text why I believe justice creates prayer. Before I give you them, let me just give you some kind of definition of justice so we know what we're talking about. Justice to God is his supreme will of equity and good justice is the essence of who God is Psalm 89:14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne so God will not be coerced bribed he's too smart and too powerful he is the pattern and the example of justice and he is perfectly qualified he is the only one qualified to give justice. There is no one else that we would dare put justice in the hands of except our perfect God. Now, the four reasons, the first reason I believe that Jesus believes justice creates prayer because justice is an expression for us of his supreme mercy. Think about it. Do we really know what it means to get justice from God? We are sinners. Jesus says he will give justice to us, but not the justice that someone might tremble before as God's enemy now. Before, the justice of God was against us. here he's saying the justice of God is for us. It is no longer our curse but the justice of God is now our blessing. The transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ has so renovated our status. It has so changed how God views us that justice is reversed. The justice of God does not stand as a sword to slay us. When we cry out for justice now, it is the fruit of a changed relationship. Think about this. How can we be asking for justice and it not be against us? That is normally a prayer that would terrify some people. But he is not only telling us we have it, but he is encouraging us to pray for, and cry out for justice. Jesus, I think, embedded in here is saying, only if you possess the very righteousness of Jesus Christ are you safe to ask for God's justice. This is why he calls us, and our special status before God, his elect, in verse 7. We have been so elevated by God's grace that we are now safe to ask for God's justice. We dwell in his safety. Therefore, the gospel does not just change who we are, but it also changes what we can ask for. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. Being able to ask for God's justice shows us that we are truly his elect. Let me say that one more time. Being able to ask for God's justice means that we are truly his elect. It becomes a privilege to pray. This justice here, which is supposed to cause us to pray, is a signification. It shows us we have been so set apart by God. It becomes our privilege our special blessing to be able to speak language that others cannot speak. The second reason that I see is because here we have a divine promise. Verse seven, God will give justice. Verse eight, I tell you, he will speak. Speedily give justice. There is a divine promise. God's infinite love for us, his children, has moved him to make promises to us. We cannot force his hand. We cannot make him give promises that he doesn't want to give, but he has moved himself in his great overwhelming love to make promises to us, his children, He wants us to have a a healthy theology of promise. The Bible is not all commands, and it's not all threats. The Bible also has promises. So as we come, I have a picture here as though as we come to God in prayer, he puts promises in our empty hands. Our hands are empty. But he puts promises in them. He is the one who decides what promises we have. And Jesus believes that a promise for justice will create prayer. Justice for us. The goodness of safely dwelling in his justice. A category that I don't normally think in. What Jesus thinks that this is a good category for me. So it's a category that I need to stretch myself in and to change the way I think because Jesus believes this is so good for me. These promises are not for everyone. He clearly says these are for his elect, for his children. These are for us, Alone. For any that would come to Christ in faith, they too have these promises. But if they stand in rejection to Jesus, then the promises still remain away. So in this passage, here, Jesus is giving us very specific promises. Sometimes people think, I have faith in God very generally, and that's good. But here, this is something very specific. When we are on our knees in prayer, we can hear God will give justice as a specific promise from God. And so this morning, God is placing a promise of justice in our hands. So let empty hands become praying hands. The third reason I see this world is so full of darkness and pain and sadness and evil. To know that God in his goodness will make sure that there is no injustice that remains at the end of time gives us great hope in our prayers. For example, not everybody thinks this way. An atheist might say, well, I don't have justice, but we as a collective community, we make the world a better place. But for an atheist, the world is just random, chance, nothing, there is no final word on justice. So for them to pray, would be a contradiction in two ways. They don't believe in God and they do not believe in justice. But for us Christians, the cross demonstrates God's decisive act in justice. It shows that there is an unstoppable movement of all of history towards God's coming, the coming kingdom of Christ in perfection and in glory and in power. And therefore, we pray because the cross shows that God is active in this world. He still moves today. He says he will not delay long. He will do it speedily as God defines speedily. The day draws near. Every day we get closer and closer and closer to the day of perfections the day that all wrongs will be righted. The last reason I see is because there is a deep, deep, deep love embedded in this justice. God is saying, if you lay a hand upon my child, you lay a hand upon me. If you touch my child, you touch God. There is a unity, a oneness. He identifies with us in our brokenness so much that his protecting hand stands guard over us continuously. Zechariah 2 8 says that we are the apple of his eye. To touch a child is to touch the eye of God. To harm the body of Christ is to harm Christ himself. God is unwilling to crush us. He in his great love gave his willing son to be crushed for us. And he does not do nothing as we are set apart as worthless, because he has set us apart as precious. You think about the Old Testament. Israel, oppressed by Egypt, God brought 10 plagues because his people were oppressed. Daniel, the prophet, thrown into a lion's den, and it says that God kept the mouths of the lions shut. There is God's activity In this world for justice. And in his wisdom, it happens and it does not happen. But he is active. And he says, For any injustices that remain, justice will be delivered in the end. So we see God is provoked when we, his children, are set apart as worthless because he has set us apart as precious. Look again at verse 7. It says, "God will give justice to his elect that cry out day and night." He's also getting at the cry of the widow. You see she came asking and asking and asking and asking, and Jesus is teaching us the virtue of continuously asking. That a natural petition by a powerless widow overcomes a selfish judge, how much more will supernatural petitions by the bride of Jesus Christ give us the kingdom of God? Give us what we ask for. Our situation is so different than this widow's. She stood alone, but we have each other. She was not invited, but God presses us continuously with invitations. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. She comes with no price in her hand, but we come with the price, the price of the infinite blood of Jesus Christ to merit the hearing of our prayers. We have his blood in our hands so that we will be heard. It is him who gives us the ability to pray. So we see at its essence, prayer is a desire for more. Just as this widow is showing us, more grace, God. Pour out more of yourself, more of your love. Exalt your son more. The widow is saying, don't desire less, desire more, more. Keep going. And that is the essence of prayer. And he has a reputation, not like the judge who doesn't listen. He has a reputation as a prayer-hearing God. He will do it. So the parable gives us two great motivations justice and the value of petitions. The widow inspires us, the promise gives us a foundation and with these we rebel. We rebel against all the world and its fallenness. We refuse to accept evils in the world by prayer. We refuse to be passive and do nothing Instead, we cry out for justice. We cry out as a quest for justice from God. We do not sit idly by. We cry for justice. Lord, do it. And there, it is in that justice, we cry out, Lord, do it more. That is the testimony of the scriptures. Our cries are more powerful than all the political leaders of the world. We are the bride of Christ and we have a God that moves. I want to take a pause for a moment and I want to address two objections that after I read the parable, I had. The first objection would be Why do I pray? God is going to do everything He's going to do anyway. He's just going to do it, so my prayers don't matter. But you see, this passage answers that question. The widow cried and cried. The elect are said in verse 7 to cry out, and the response is justice. The response is justice. Our prayers are vital. That is what Jesus is telling us. God moves, God answers, and God gets all the glory But God is working in all of our working. God is working in all of our working. And you know what? I tremble because God does not work around me. The almighty God works through us to accomplish great things in the earth. His normal way to accomplish his will is by hearing the prayer first and then answering it. That is the way our God works. This is exactly what this passage is teaching us. The second objection I had, what do you do with all of the supposed unanswered prayers? God answers every prayer, yes, no, later, but We have an experience in life that God has not answered our prayers. If you pray a hundred times and 99 of them do not get the answer that you want and he only gets the answer you want on the hundredth prayer, what do you do with the 99 prayers? If you pray a hundred times, And he answers no to all 100. Was it worthless? Was it just vanity? When Jesus says the elect cry out, do you hear Jesus calling you to waste a lot of your time making prayers that will go unanswered? How do you answer this question? You see... I believe it is good that there are some things, some things in your life that God keeps and does not answer yes to immediately. Because it's better to have prayed a thousand times coming near to God rather than getting the answer you want immediately because by going a thousand times, you come near to God You plead with him. You draw near to your God. Remember the cross. In Matthew 16, Peter had come to Christ saying, Lord, may it never be that you would go to the cross. But Jesus, he listens to the request of Peter, but in the superior wisdom of God, he knows if I was to stop this cross, all of the benefits, all of the good that would come out of it would then be nullified. So he listens, but the superior wisdom of God does not answer it the way that Peter wants. But notice in that passage in Matthew 16, Peter is corrected. He is taught. He is given more wisdom and more understanding in coming to Christ in prayer. Even though the answer was not the one that he wanted, it was good to keep coming to Jesus. And Jesus, rather than being angry with Peter, six days later it says that he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he gets to see the glory of Jesus Christ. To be in prayer is to commune with God, that is never a waste of time. Let me ask you a question Would it please God if you hold back your cries? and your tears and your yearning from God? Will that please your father to hold back your weaknesses? Wouldn't it be better to hide yourselves under his wings to find a secret hiding place between you and God because you are constantly communing with him. So he wants us to bring all of our brokenness, bring all of our needs, bring all of our pains, bring all of our weaknesses to the one who wants them all. He does not only want our Sunday best, He wants the Wednesday worst. God is crying out for us to come. We honor Him by crying out to Him as God. God is jealous. Verse 17, the elect are crying out. God is jealous for your cries and he deserves those cries. He deserves those cries. He wants every part of you. He wants all of us to come to him, especially the weak parts, so he can bless us, so he can heal us, so he can comfort us in our weaknesses, so in Psalm 73, 28, it says, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge. Mm. So we cry out like the widow. We keep asking. We keep asking. We don't know. We don't know when he's going to say yes. So we keep going and we keep going. But we know that we are his children. And he is Wise And he is good. And we know that it is good for us every time we cry out to him. He is teaching us. He is growing us. He is healing us. And we honor him when we don't hold anything back from him. Now in verse 8, it says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The literal word is, will he find faith? the faith on the earth. So Jesus does something very interesting here. He kind of already said some pretty deep stuff, and then he goes even deeper. So he's saying when Jesus comes back, will he find the faith, literally, on the earth, the faith that will be crying out in prayer, the faith that believes in this justice, the faith that is petitioning, Constantly, like the widow. And then, he explains a little bit more. What is that faith? What does the faith actually look like? He's saying, I just told you a whole lot of stuff about justice and the value of petitions, but I'm going to tell you what that's all built on. Faith. So I'm going to be a good preacher. I'm going to take a moment to explain faith to you now. And We know that because he connects it with the word also at the beginning of verse 9. It also says in there, Luke is telling us the the audience in verse 9 for the next parable are those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. It's getting at faith. He wants to give us the foundation of prayer. What does a faith that prays look like? Now, this begs the question. Jesus is telling us there are some that trust in themselves, that they are righteous and despise others. We should each individually ask ourselves, am I trusting in my own righteousness? Or am I trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as my only hope for acceptance? Only you and God know if your faith is in your own righteousness or the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's get this parable in front of us. Verse 9. He told, he'd also told this parable The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The first character now is a Pharisee. You've seen them tons of times so far. The Pharisees, he says, God, you're kind of you're lucky to have me, basically. So he's talking about all the stuff that he does not do. I don't cheat anybody. I don't commit adultery. I'm not like this guy, this, fa- this tax collector who betrayed our people and is stealing from us. I don't extort any money. In fact, I memorize a lot of scripture. I know a lot of Bible. I go to the prayer meetings. I go to the synagogue. I go to church. Like, I do a whole lot of good stuff, God. So he's coming to God with a price in his hand. The price that he has is his own righteousness. But it says he was not justified. He does not have this solid faith. This solid foundation that true prayer is built upon. He is arrogant. His arrogance destroys all of his sincerity in prayer. He is confessing the sins of his neighbors. And there's millions of prayers just like this one. But God says he resists the proud. This is not the faith that saves. This is not the faith that leads you to true, ongoing, God-honoring prayer. So then we go to the second character. This is that true faith. Jesus wants us to look at the tax collector. He brings no money. He brings no works. He doesn't defend himself. All he does is admit his own sinfulness. All he does is bring a feeble prayer to God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The literal word there is the sinner. He's in his own class with all the sinners. That is the faith that Jesus wants, that we are in the class of the sinners needing God to be merciful to us. And in that, it says he was justified, made righteous. This is like the parable of the prodigal son when the father, lifting up his garments, runs to his child, wraps his arms around him and says, My son, that is all I wanted, the cry for God to be merciful to me, a sinner, one humble Repentant cry makes us more righteous than innocent Adam in the Garden of Eden. We have now the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness. And it is the glory of God to make evil men good. And from those good men coming forth in prayer, that is what true faith looks like. This is the best news that never makes the newspapers. The day that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us. When you were, the day you realized you were nothing is the day you became everything to God. This is the best day of our lives. Have we ever cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do we still cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That faith gives God more glory, more glory than trying to keep the law ourselves because Jesus keeps the law perfectly for us. And that gives God more glory so to be humbled and broken, knowing our needs, that is the faith of the tax collector. That is the faith that lives in prayer. In verse 14, it says that he humbled himself. Humility is not really, it's not really figuring out that you're worse than you really are. Humility is more like discovering how bad you actually already are. So that being humble means that you're more in touch with the reality of your neediness. Your sinfulness and your limitations, your sinfulness and your limitations create your neediness. And that creates our prayerfulness. When we recognize that we are sinful and limited and needy, that is the faith of the tax collector. That is the faith that will always pray and not lose heart. But the Pharisee, he exalts himself. And the passage says he will be humbled, whether in this life, possibly, or he will be humbled when he meets ultimate reality. God, The right response is when there is someone stronger than you, you humble yourselves. And us Christians, by a gift, we have seen the sores of sin on our body. We have seen our brokenness. We have seen our weakness. And in weakness, we are made strong. In ashes, we become beautiful. From stones, God makes us jewels. So as we close, the second parable is really getting at the essence of what it means to be a creature of God. To be a creature is to be in prayer. It is to be in prayer for more. We are sinful limited. There's one stronger than us. So we pray for faith, for love, for justice, for mercy, for all that God has for us. And he condescends to us to hear us. He loves to hear our prayers. He has no limitations. He has no impurities. There is no one stronger than our God. None that he has to bow before. Yet he hears our prayers. God, our, the son, Jesus Christ, humbles himself, enters creation, dies on a cross. He dies on the tree that he made. When you have all the power, when you are perfectly holy, when there is no one stronger than you, what does humility look like? It looks like our God he is the humble God who moves to our level to work in our prayers, and he loves to do it. It is a great thing to know, to know from the bottom of your heart and to believe that nothing happens unless God moves. When we have dangers difficulties, obstacles, we know by faith, if God moves, that is enough. If God moves, everything else moves. He is the one that makes everything happen. When you believe this, you will pray. You will always pray and not lose heart. This is the blessedness of poverty of spirit to live on the alms of free grace from God. More, God. Show me more of your promises. Raise up your name more, oh God. Let me me enjoy you more. Display your gospel more. Save more, oh God. This is our heart's cry. In prayer, we are addicted to receiving from God to his glory in prayer we are addicted to receiving from God to his glory so when he created the universe and he determined the most important things the greatest gift that he would ever give would be Christ and his righteousness When he designed the world, where would the oceans be? Where would the animals be? Where would be the most noble Mount Calvary where I will give them righteousness? His idea is to constantly be giving to us, to be like this Pharisee. The Pharisee was not a receiver, he had his own righteousness, but it was a fake righteousness the relationship he had with God is to twist the essence of our relationship with God. He twisted it. He would not submit to God's righteousness. He would not let God be God. To reject the greatest gift in the entire universe the audacity to reject Jesus Christ, to reject the kind of relationship where God loves to give. That is why hell exists. There are people who will not let God be God. God has designed from the beginning to be the giver of everything. To reject the giving of God is to reject the glory of God. That is why the tax collector cries out. He doesn't just get the best gift. He gets the best kind of relationship. He's giving an amen to the good design of God where he will be the provider of everything. So to be in constant prayer, that is the position of a receiver. We are constantly receiving from him. This year, live 2017 in prayer, in communion with God, in battle, rebelling against all the fallenness, safely asking God for justice, Receiving his promiseness, promises, all built on faith, faith like that tax collector, broken, humble, receiving from God, living on faith, all to the glory of God, the giver of everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father) <laughs> I love the relationship that you've made, oh God. I love that you want to be the giver of all things. That you have planned from all of eternity to be the giver of the best gifts, Lord God. So that you get all the glory and we get the best relationship with you, O oh God. Forever and ever and ever, O oh God. Thank you, sweet God. Thank you, Jesus, for winning that for us in the cross, for making every one of those promises. And amen, oh God. You love us. Let us live in prayer, knowing that only things are moving by you, oh God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.